You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Datages friends and family, welcome back to Datages and welcome to uh, our continuing Entrepreneur's Corner uh, series here at Datages. I'm very, very happy to welcome today's guest into the corner. Uh, today's guest is Jonathan Orr, and he's not only an entrepreneur, uh, but he's an alum of my company, Aventine Development Corporation. I was really happy when Jonathan reached out to me recently, and I'm really excited to welcome him into the Datages studio. So Jonathan, thank you very much for being here and thank you for making yourself a part of the Datages friends and family. No, thank you, Chad. It's great to be here and uh, it's great to reconnect and, and talk shop and everything else. I've been loving Datages thus far and look forward to it. Oh, well, thank you. And it's, it's great to see you. It's great to see a friendly and familiar face from years gone by. I, I looked back and it was hard for me to believe that your engagement with Aventine was in 2013. Uh, and at that time, we were both living in Orange County, California, uh, and you were, had graduated from Chapman University uh, pretty recently uh, ahead of your engagement with us. And for those of our listeners that don't know, Chapman is a phenomenal private university in Southern California. Maybe you can share a little bit about your educational background, your time at Chapman, and what led you to the doorstep of Aventine? Because for you, I, I think real estate was not an accident. It was very much a conscious decision that led you to us. Growing up in Southern California, Orange County, um, I was an avid football player and was fortunate enough to just play at Chapman, uh, Division Three of NCAA, which was a great experience um, playing with you know 80 some odd guys. I know, Chad, that you're a big football uh, guy and, you know, with Stanford. And it was fantastic um, being just far enough away from home that I got the college experience of living in the dorms and then living off campus with friends. But at the same time, uh, as I joke, I could go home and have my my mother do my laundry if I needed to. So it uh, was a great experience, great school. Uh, our class was actually the first class of over a thousand students that started and it's only grown from there. Um, looking back on it now, it was a great experience uh, just to you know connect with people and be able to grow into adulthood. And yeah, leading into real estate overall, my, my father is a real estate developer, former banker uh, turned developer. And I always knew sort of that I wanted to get into the business. Um, so it was great to be able to study business at Chapman and get out. And when I was looking at my father saying, what do I do next in 2011? So it was not far after the 2008 scenario. 
he said, go work for someone. He said, and he still to this day says, I wanted you to learn other people's mistakes before you learned mine. And so I was fortunate. I started with Hilton Hotels and then bounced around to a couple different real estate um, firms, learning acquisitions development, and eventually worked my way to you, which is where we connected. And you really threw me into the fire. I'm good at that. I'm good at that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I always say about team building and one of the things that's a big part of our corporate culture is that responsibility in a professional setting is truly a luxury and accountability is the price that you pay for it. And I'm sure that you live that and experience that as part of Aventine. I will say joining Aventine, I can still remember applying for the job that you had posted. And I believe we spoke the evening that you posted it, um, we had a brief conversation. Uh, I believe, you know, kind of an interview over the phone. You then called me back within an hour and offered me the position, and I didn't know really what to do. Um, I had never been in that, you know, <laughs> that sort of quick decision making right there. You know that that sounds like me. That sounds familiar because one of the other things that I've learned over you know, 25 years in this business and in business in general is as good as I think I am at interviewing, really, I, I've made mistakes both ways. I've underestimated people through an interview process. I've overestimated people through an interview process. And what I've really found is the only good working inter- the only good interview is a working interview. And, and that's, that's been a big part of, of my philosophy for hiring is sticking with that philosophy of getting into the working interview, which is just go to work with somebody, as you said. And from my standpoint, as an employer, employer, it's just bring somebody in and get to work. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can agree. And, and actually, I've learned that too, as I've grown in you know starting my business and, and everything else is instead of trying to make sure you tick every box, getting into the work and, and really that's how you learn about a, everyone that you're uh, dealing with in business. So yeah, that was the first of, I think the whirlwind, I'll, I'll summarize it in that, where we were, uh, you were taking on when Fresh and Easy, if people aren't familiar with that brand, um, you know, taking on, I believe up to 12 sites if I remember, and you know, working on everything from land leases, ground up, build the suits. It was uh, that was really when the fun began, and I was trying to play catch up. And but you were, you know, you were always there teaching me. Well, and the other thing that sounds like me is when you talk about your background, uh, not only going to a strong educational program where you came in with the experience, but coming from a real estate family where you had some genetic knowledge and some exposure to it over the years through your father. And then also the fact that you played competitive sports. I've said before on datages when talking about team building that I really look for at least one of three characteristics or background experiences in everyone I hire. One is competitive sports, like you, being part of a team. Two is military experience. And three is hospitality experience. Because to me, in each of those professions, you're exposed to an environment where you have to put other people first and be part of a team and in order to work towards success. It's getting past that me first attitude. And you, just like others that I've brought in, came without that attitude. You came without the me first attitude. You were ready to learn. You're ready to be part of a team. You're ready to go be thrown into the ringer and come out the other end better than when you went in. And I, I remember those times and I remember uh, you know, what, what that experience was like. 
and you were well prepared for it. And I think that you got a lot out of it. Um, and the program you're talking about was one of my favorite programs that I've ever been a part of in my career. And we'll spend a little bit of time on it. But before we talk about the program itself, you know, maybe you can uh, share just a few stories about your time working in the trenches at Aventine and, and the experience of, of working with me. And I know I'm not the easiest person to work for. Uh, and it comes with a set of high expectations and standards. But uh, I'm always open to hearing feedback as a leader. I think you know that. And this is your opportunity many years after the fact to provide a completely candid uh, recounting of what your experience was. Uh, like I said, share some stories and, and share what it was like working for Chad Hagel. Absolutely. The first thing that I will say, and I think this really speaks to today's environment, is I worked remote. There was no set office, which was a little daunting at first as I had my laptop and you know was always used to you know opening up a web web browser and you know and kind of doing schoolwork but having to coordinate and I believe we were using um, I don't know if it was Dropbox or OneDrive at the time whatever platform you were utilizing organizing documents people were um, you know various people were putting in things as you were collecting them on the the sites that you had and that was one thing I remember of trying to comb through this information, um, not on my own time, but in addition to some of the tasks that you were having me do to learn about these sites and and really kind of discovering myself and figuring out what each document was, what was missing, uh, maybe things that were relevant versus uh, not relevant. So that was one thing that really, I think, prepared me for, especially today's age of this remote work and dealing virtually with people. Yeah, we were remote before it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it, it's really an interesting aspect of my business uh, and an aspect of the evolution of my business. And there's a, a, a new episode of Datages that's going to be re released here shortly that is going to cover a lot of those topics of what I learned in running a business and learning to be allergic to overhead. Uh, and it was that recovery from the GFC this is a bit of a spoiler alert for, for the, the episode, but it was that recovery from the GFC that was a really tough time for me when our company got clobbered because the rules of the game had changed. And working with national retailers uh, was a different ball game because they were all struggling. And, and that was reflected in the work that we were doing with Fresh and Easy uh, to talk a little bit about that program and, and share with the friends and family what it was all about. Fresh and Easy was the American brand name of Tesco, which is one of the most successful uh, supermarket chains in the UK. And they were famous for trying to make this uh, entry into the US. And I remember vividly going to ICSC, and this was around 2011 or 12 before you, you came on board with us. And I love this name. The guy who was the head of real estate for the grocery chain, Fresh and Easy, was Tony Eggs. <laughs> and Tony Eggs was, sh showed up at ICSC. And at that point in time, Fresh and Easy had lost $2 billion in the US market. And somebody asked him, they said, Tony, you've lost $2 billion in the market. How are you guys ever going to make it? And he said, if we haven't lost $4 billion by this time next year, we haven't done our job. 
they were so prideful about how they could come in and teach Americans how to run a grocery business and conquer the, the, the country. And lo and behold, a year later, they had lost $4 billion and Tony Eggs lost his job and the company closed. So it was a very interesting time period that was reflective of why we were struggling so much and why we had to be so disciplined about our overhead during that time period and converted to this model where we didn't have an office, we didn't have employees, we had people working as independent consultants, just like you were, working remote for the company. And it was a very disciplined way of running a company in a very tumultuous time period. But out of those struggles, just like is often the case, uh, you, you never overlook a good crisis as an opportunity. We found an opportunity to work with this bankrupt grocery chain, fresh and easy, you assembled a team, including you, to go after it aggressively and work to reposition these assets. We formed a partnership with Fortress Investment Group. And actually between us and Fortress, we bought 53 of these assets out of the chain, out of their bankruptcy. And our team at Orozco Aventine, because what was also great at this time period was the fact that you got to be part of the best joint venture of my career, which was about an eight-year partnership with fellow classmates from Stanford, the Orozco brothers, Patrick and Chris. And you're part of a great team that we put together to tackle these kind of initiatives and take on 16 of their real estate assets that were at various stages of development or lack thereof and turn them all around and reposition them for other tenants. And that was, you really got a, a phenomenal opportunity, I think, even from my vantage point, to work on a pretty unique and exciting program. And, and I'm curious if the, the experiences you had there, the lessons you learned, if those things have translated at all later in your career as you've gone on and what lessons you've pulled from that time period. Absolutely. The, the joint venture with the Orozco Group, first and foremost, uh, me being, I think, 24 at the time, 25, still young, um, a little arrogant, not realizing the, um, I'll say the, the pedigree of the Orozco Group was looking back on it now, you know, very humbling to look at. And one of the things, and again, I reference back to the virtual work of having to deal with sites, not just within an hour's drive, but all over the state in multiple states um, and being able to have different vendors and, um, you know, contractors that you're working with in different locations, coordinating with them has, I think, given me an edge of being able to look at a greater geographical view of real estate opportunities. I think that, you know, your ability and we can get more into the weeds of our, our one, I'll call it road trip, uh, looking at the sites, the, uh, you know, being able to adapt quickly to small cities in the middle of nowhere, California to, um, you know, the Bay area and very dense infill locations. Uh, it was great to have that variety of sites as, you know, I tell everyone fresh and easy was a very interesting model of that they owned anything from the dirt to the HVAC units. And then I remember you vividly telling me that um, and how that was weird for retail development. And so, yeah, that was a great experience just being able to touch these different, realistically different types of sites for different end users. Yeah, it, it was uh, definitely a diverse program, as you said. And some of what you're saying, some of these atypical characteristics of their real estate, 
are part of what I was describing, how um, the Brits were going to come in and teach us all how to do real estate the right way. Uh, and it was a very expensive model with them owning so much of the components of those buildings and extending so much of their own capital rather than relying upon developers and, and the marketplace to deliver things for them and more build to suit capacity. Uh, it, it truly was uh, a unique approach and one that failed uh, colossally. So share some road trip stories. Tell us about, tell us all about that road trip. Well, I, so if I remember correctly, um, you wanted to, I believe it was over a three day period. We flew up to Fresno because there was some sites in Clovis that, um, you know, and it was various meetings with the most exciting parts of California. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We uh, you know, were meeting with brokers that we were engaged with in finding end users, um, cities. I believe we even met with um, maybe some architects or, or someone on the, the third party side assisting us. And we went from Fresno, which was really, and you never knew this, was really my first business trip. Um, you know, to the scale of, you know, where I don't drive down to San Diego or something like that. So I'm sitting in this, I believe it was a Radisson in the middle of Fresno going, okay, what are we doing here? And you were on a mission because we had a very tight timeline. Yeah. I, we saw, I believe six or seven different properties over three days. Yeah. Um, Cause we were bidding at auction and we were under a competitive deadline to acquire these assets. Yeah. And so we went from Fresno, saw some sites in Clovis, Drove to the city I will never forget, Los Banos, California. Um, you know, and drove by this ideal site right on the main thoroughfare, um, and, and took a look at the surrounding uh, demographics and you know competitors in that area. Drove up. Um, I believe we then hit some sites in the Stockton area. Um, Boy, and, you just weren't prepared for how luxurious the life of a developer really was, were you? That's right. And well, the other thing was we drove that, yeah. you know, those stretches. So I'm in the car with you, not knowing what I'm doing with a person that I've only known kind of virtually. And you're, you know, rattling off, we need to be looking at this. We need to, you know, what about this person? You're taking calls and I'm just sitting there. And I really had to absorb that. Is this the life of a developer? Uh, being on the road in that that you know fourteen hour plus day of getting from point A to point B and being effective in in looking and the one thing I will say is I believe we went into the city of Clovis if I'm not mistaken to meet with someone at the planning department and you were talking about a site plan that you had done and with the potential of um, splitting it into two different tenants. Uh, some of the architectural and um, site plan review stuff that would need to take place. And I just sat there quietly, kind of listened. And on the way to, I believe it was Los Banos, you said, okay, you're going to go talk to the planning department. And I sat there and I went, what? What, what? am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds a lot like me too, because uh, one of the other elements of our corporate culture here at Aventine is what, what I describe as the med school approach which is see one, do one, teach one. Uh, it's a rapid approach to throwing people into the fire, giving them an example of how to do something, then encouraging them to take the reins to do it themselves, and then building a teamwork environment where you're teaching somebody else how to do what you've learned. Important thing to know about those circumstances is, and this is what really gives people trepidation, 
you're not going to break anything. You're not going to break something that can't be fixed. Uh, and, and so it, it can be uncomfortable and I'm sure it was for you. Uh, but you're really not ever going to, going to break something in one of those circumstances. So how did it go? I, I fell on my face. I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, I remember that one of the main points was asking about the the approval process for a firewall that um, you wanted to implement, because I believe we were looking at splitting this vacant site into two users, as I mentioned. And I was rambling, and I remember you interjecting, you know, not not condescending in any way, but just, okay, Jonathan needs a little bit of help. Let's clarify some things to this, you know, probably the director of planning in this, you know, tiny little uh, municipality. And it, I really learned right then and there that instead of trying to be technical, instead of trying to over talk something, getting to the bare bones of here's my question, let's get this answered effectively is key. And that's one thing I've taken into my career now is instead of putting a bunch of fluff, let's get down to business. Let's figure this out because there's a strategic way we need to handle things. Let's not waste time doing it. Wow. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate the trip down memory lane. Uh, I'm, you can see, probably see I'm smiling ear to ear and, and laughing on the inside here because uh, you know the experiences you're talking about are so fundamental to the way that I've led my professional life, to the way I've built an organization, and to the way I always say, even though in our business, we're focused on building buildings, at the end of the day, what's important to me is building people and providing those opportunities for people to grow into their greatest potential. And that's what's so exciting about this opportunity to have you come back and, and be a part of Datages and to share some of these stories. and you know, now I'm, I'm really excited to advance forward and talk about how these things might have served you along the way, what your journey has been since then. Uh, I, I think your focus it primarily right now is in Arizona. I'm eager to hear about, which is where I started my career. I'm eager to hear about how things are going there uh, and sort of connecting the dots between those days at Aventine on the road and being thrown in the fire to, to where you're at today. I've been very fortunate, and as I as as I alluded to earlier, of being able to dip my toe in different real estate um, sectors of anything from acquisitions, entitlements with with you, um, some property management, where I've developed this skill set of that jack of all trades, master of none mentality that I think can hinder me a little bit, but has given me the ability to look at different geographical areas, different asset classes, and be able to build a business that in this day and age, flexibility and adaptation, I think is key. Let me uh, maybe provide a little bit different perspective to what you just said, because I don't think you should consider yourself a jack of all trades and a master of none. I think that what you should really look at, and this is really fundamental to real estate, is what you have developed as your primary skill set is adaptability. You've developed the flexibility of the framework of problem solving and working hard and taking initiative and, and looking for opportunities. And you've applied it across so many different areas, but your fundamental skill set is the same and you are a master of that. You've become a master at being a developer because being a developer is being able to do all of those different things 
And that's what it boils down to. If you don't have that breadth of experience, you've never cultivated that core expertise, which is the flexibility and the elasticity itself. Absolutely. No, that and that's that's great. To, I feel very honored to to get that title. Um, that you know the adaptability, especially in today's age. And Chad, you can even reference it and expand on it more. That a developer is the conductor of the orchestra. When and another thing I learned through you is not trying to do everything yourself, relying on the professionals. And the ability for people to do their own jobs. And I view it as, or say it as, I stay in my lane and I let the professionals handle their professional duties. The very first episode of Datages was surround yourself with people who are better than you are at what they do best and then let them do it. Absolutely. So it, that's, that's a fundamental component of building a successful business from my perspective. And I'm, I'm glad that you've internalized that. I'm glad that you've put it in practice even more so, which sometimes it's easy to say and hard to do. I'm glad you've been able to actually implement that. No, I, and I have because that's the only way when you are really an entrepreneur and working for yourself or working with a couple of close partners, you can't take on too much during the day because you have too many items. It would drive myself crazy. And, you know, I'm recently married, you know, only a couple of years. So, you know, that's one of the things that have changed since being with Aventine. I also have a family now. And, you know, trying to break down time, and I know you've even talked about this, is, you know, time is my most valuable item. And so having people work on different things, but one of the other things that you have taught me, and I fought this for quite a while, is the expectations of others when it comes to time. And I still remember kind of going back to the Aventine days of us being on a conference call with a civil engineer or a broker, and we outlined the the task list that needed to be handled. And you would just come out and say it, you know, when can we expect, um, you know, X, Y, Z to be done? And it wasn't a demand of this needs to be handled within an hour and a half, but it provides accountability for everyone of saying, okay, if this is going to take a week, let's follow up in a week, or you'll get it to me by the end of the day. Then we at least have that goal in mind to, to strive towards. Jonathan, you're doing a great job of planting all of these datages Easter eggs into this episode, because uh, what you really talked about was uh, the part two of a Datages episode, which is the distance between success and failure in my career has been measured by one variable, which is the ability to create a sense of urgency. And that's exactly what you're talking about. There is no such thing in business as a task without a deadline to accompany it. And it's one of, I'm glad again, that you have heard that you've experienced it and that you've been able to implement that yourself in, in your own career. Yeah. Having the ability just to ask up front creates a lot of confidence on both ends, knowing that we both have the same expectation in something instead of hiding or trying to follow up at a later time for something where, you know, and this is one thing why I fought it is I didn't want to feel like I was imposing on anyone. And when I realized that the only person I was hurting by not doing that was myself, because people would waste, waste their times or take longer when I could have just asked and they had it done already. Well, actually not holding them accountable is hurting whoever you're dealing with as well. 
because you're setting them up for failure unless you define what is success. If they don't know and you don't know, and you don't have a mutual agreement about what is success on this project, including the timeline to get it done, how do you know that whether or not you've succeeded and how do you set them up for them to be successful? Absolutely. Now that, that's been one of the greatest things that you've taught me, Chad, is the accountability and the measure of success is the expectations of others. So that's another one of the other things you've <laughs> been able to show and teach me, but it's, it's transitioned me into really working for myself and with my father, who's still in the real estate development industry. Um, and to summarize our, of how we got to today is after working with you and working with a few other companies, I finally joined my father and we were working in the hospitality hotel space. We were developing limited service hotels, mostly throughout California. And our last project was actually a larger deal in Northern California, which was 12 and a half acres. We brought on some, some joint venture partners to handle this mixed use aspect. And that was quite an eventful entitlement period. Um, and Chad, you can laugh as you hear this. It took us close to four years just to get it entitled. So, And what city was that? That was in the city of Rohnert Park, California. Uh, yeah, that takes me back to the days of working in California. And that's why I no longer own anything there. The, the last piece of real estate I had to get rid of when I left California was my own home. I had already gotten rid of all of my commercial holdings prior to that because of the difficulty of working in the California environment. And you just encapsulated it right there. Yeah. So that was, that was a period that I learned a lot of the nuances when it came to, to entitlements and dealing with things such as a dry Creek that had supposedly an endangered animal in it that we had to go get clearance for to the cities or aspects of the cities taking their pound of flesh in every project that they touch. Um, so that was quite an experience, but that leads us to actually the start of 2020. We had finalized that project, sold off the last piece of land actually um, to another developer. And then 2020 happens where from the hospitality side, hotels stopped we didn't know what to do. And so mostly myself and my father looked at each other and went, if hotels aren't going to be built or occupied, what can we do? And we started looking at partners that we've worked with and connections to see what other things can we get into. We looked at retail, um, you know, some home aspects, and we came across this industrial concept that a partner of mine did in the 90s in Las Vegas that is a little bit different than the traditional flex warehouse type of product. And so we approached him, Scott uh, Scott Fawcett, who was the originator of this, is still uh, working in Newport Beach. He did this project after seeing contractors, subcontractors working out of larger storage units in the city of Orange, he saw the these 800 square foot units with a roll-up door and people had equipment and materials in these units and they'd drive up, unload their stuff. You know, maybe they're 
writing an invoice and then they're gone. They're out on the, on the job site. And this spurred on him to do a larger development strictly dedicated to that. And so we took his concept with his blessing, of course, and he's actually an investor in, uh, and a partner of ours. Uh, we started refining this concept and spent about a year and a half looking at, is this being done? Um, the viability of it being done and where's the best location to do number one. And we landed on a property um, on the West side of Phoenix that we uh, now have, have gone through site plan approvals and are now venturing into the construction drawing phase and uh, finishing out the capital stack to take vertical. And then hopefully this is the first of several others that um, I can kind of base my career around. That's fantastic. And it sounds like you've had some uh, good partners, mentors, role models to work with to get to that point. Uh, You talked about Scott Fawcett and him giving you a business model uh, and helping to teach you and train you in that model and and help refine it and perfect it and apply it in your own context. And then working with your father. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about those role models and and those partners and, and what they've meant in your life. And Particularly, I'm sure there are other members of the Datages friends and family that get involved in working with family, and that presents its own set of unique challenges and opportunities in, in working in that setting. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, share your background there. The working with friends and family is a blessing and a curse. And, yeah. Scott, and Scott has been a great mentor. Um, just hearing about his legacy and what he's done over the years in terms of retail development. My father is, I laugh because every single time we get in a little debate about something, whether it be the direction of a project or how we approach someone, you know, it's, it's always the, you are my son and you will listen to what I do and what I say. And have you ever been right yet? I think I have, but he won't admit it. I sometimes say that our uh, parents get to this point in their lives, especially if they've had their own level of success, where they start to confuse their opinions with fact. <laughs> Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. But at the same time, I would go to war with with my father and there's no one else that I would rather do business with. And how it helps me and one of the benefits I've seen is I have, when I got out of school in 2011, we're coming out of the GFC. Things are starting to turn around. And, you know, in today's age with everything going going, you know, wrong or sideways or who knows, there's a lot of uncertainty and I get very emotional because I haven't had to experience those types of things. When looking at my father, at Scott and some other partners, they're the calming eye and the calming voice in all of this to say, this is what we need to do. We're not going to you know, blow up everything and start from scratch. For them, it's been there, done that. They've been through exactly. some cycles and they, they can help you get to the other side. Exactly. And they also, very similarly to you, let me fall on my face. Um, they, you know, kind of have me figure it out. And if I have questions, the best thing to do is go ask the questions. Don't yep. keep quiet. Cause then you know, you're never going to learn anything. Yeah. Keep asking the questions and fail small so that you can succeed big later on. I think that's one of the, the key points. Well, that's a great background. I'm, I'm really touched to hear what you said about working with your father. I think it's really inspirational 
to have that family connection. Um, as you said, there are challenges, of course, in that environment. But it's great to see that you and he are navigating it. And when you do get to the other side and you are successful, I guarantee that both of you are going to hold on to that success. And it's going to be something that makes your relationship with him even stronger than it is today. So good for you. And, and, and I hope that everything turns out. I know it will. I know it's going to turn out the way that you're looking for it to. Uh, and you will succeed. It's, it's not always exactly where you expect it, but you're going to find that success. So this new venture, it's uh, three, five, six advisors, as I understand it. Yes. Let's uh, now shift gears. And this is your moment to, to give us the pitch. This is, as we call the shark tank moment on Datages, where you get to tell us all about three, five, six advisors, uh, what it is you're doing in real estate specifically, explain more about this unique business model that you're applying and what your value proposition is as a firm. 356 Advisors, or as we're rebranding to 356 Development Advisors, to be more specific. Um, we are father and son company that is looking at this model of the, the small warehouse industrial development for entrepreneurs, sole proprietors, subcontractors, those that want to be able to have a space for their own businesses or hobbies to grow. And as I had mentioned earlier, looking at this concept, refining it, and moving forward with something that is not done a whole lot in real estate, specifically industrial, we are seeing an advantage of being the first to market. And that's a little daunting as since there is no proven market, we're having to develop it ourselves. But we think that we are looking at a scenario of being able to put up Class A, safe, stable properties where the main thing that I look for in when I was evaluating this type of concept is the entrepreneur. And I'll hearken back to actually a brief time in 2019, I was working with a couple of friends in making wood baseball bats. Um, I love, love baseball. We had gotten into this hobby and the entrepreneur in me said, why can't we start a business doing this? And so we had some equipment. We were making bats for friends and selling them to a couple people. And we wanted to find a location to be able to do this and not work out of my buddy's garage in his apartment complex at 10 o'clock at night. You know, So we couldn't afford to do that. So we ended up looking and trying to find a space that was that fit our needs and also our size that was affordable. And as you know, the typical industrial light industrial flex space type product is on the smallest end. Maybe you can find maybe 2000 square feet. And so, but even at a lease rate that maybe only, you know, a couple cents a month, it's was still too much and too much space for what we needed. So that is kind of the basis and the entrepreneurial spirit that I have behind this small warehouse, contractor's garage, small bay industrial. There's multiple different names that people call it, where our product that we've developed is from 300 square feet to around 1,500 square feet for our Arizona project and varying sizes within that. And when I mention class A, these are HVAC, these have Wi Fi electrical. So it's more so than just the the storage unit that people sometimes work out of. And 
I'll, I'll tell you that I've having storage units as much as everyone does nowadays, you see people that try to store stuff there for work and it's difficult with no power, um, you know, no restroom accessibility, potentially no Wi-Fi in this day and age. So that's the market that we're looking for and being able to, to tackle is these people that want to start businesses or already have small businesses. And we're looking to basically prove the concept with this first one in Arizona. And we are under um, negotiations on a couple other sites for doing just rinse and repeating this product. So let me say, first and foremost, I buy it. Uh, I buy the thesis. uh, And and it reflects a couple of things that I want to highlight and that you can feel free to borrow and and incorporate into your your pitch and the way you present what you're doing. Um, One is that you are following trends that exist in many other industries, which is smaller is better. in, in our business, in retail, retailers are going to omni-channel. They're getting more efficient. They need to be focused on sales per square foot. They can't take as much space as they used to. One of the things we say is 10 is the new 20. 10,000 square feet is the optimal size for a lot of retailers who used to occupy 20,000 square feet. So you're applying those same trends to a different marketplace, which is this small industrial and flex space. Two is that you are going where the growth is, uh, both geographically, you've chosen great growth markets, and in terms of the product type that you're looking to offer, um, you are looking at a business sector that has evolved, particularly uh, post-COVID, and I don't think COVID changed anything. It just accelerated a lot of things that were already happening, and you're leveraging that. You're, You're grabbing hold of... Uh, one of those sectors in which this change is occurring, and you're accommodating that change. You're responding to a need in the market and delivering something that is very viable and that is just turning the dial to provide what somebody needs. And that's the last point that I really want to focus on that I like and that I buy about your business model is you're taking one of the most successful sectors of the real estate industry in the past 20 or 30 years, which is storage. I mean, there are, when you look at public storage and you look at extra space, these companies that have become REITs by just buying and developing storage space, you're providing something that is only, again, turning the dial a couple of notches from a proven business model that has succeeded at an extraordinarily high level across the country. So, I get it and I buy it. I I don't fundamentally see a problem with what you're pursuing. I fundamentally feel very positively and strongly about what you're pursuing as generally being a really good application of the tools, the time, the effort, the energy, and the money that you have available. Thank you, Chad, for, for reaffirming that. And that is exactly what we're looking at. And we keep questioning ourselves on why no one else is really taking over this sector of the market. And I think it comes from the aspect of you, you look at what industrial has moved to of hundreds of thousands of square feet under one roof and being very successful in its own right, where you know they're looking for the big boys. And we're just, we see this void in the market with someone like myself being in my I'm 34, so you know I'm. I still call myself young, um, you know, 
people having aspirations due to COVID and, you know, and as you mentioned, things that have accelerated it. Um, so yeah, the, the, the one thing that we are valuing ourselves on is being able to build the right team for it. And that's why we spent a lot of time looking at sites, but also making sure that when number one opens, number two opens, that we have the team in place and aren't letting anything slip through the cracks. Well, in what you're describing, you're also playing into another strong suit here uh, because you've identified something and I'll, I'll characterize it in this way. The entire real estate industry, every sector has become hyper-institutionalized. Real estate is moving in a direction that there are bigger and bigger players owning larger and larger segments of the market. And as an entrepreneur, as an independent developer, you can look at that and say, we're all screwed. We can't compete. We can't do anything. Or you can innovate and find that niche where you actually benefit from the diseconomies of scale that prevent larger institutional players from playing in the exact space that you're in. You found a niche where an entrepreneurial lean and mean development team, and you hit on the importance of building the team where you can be successful in a world in which everything is hyper-institutionalized. And let me tell you this, if you are successful enough and you rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and keep building your platform and keep owning what you develop and not sell it, you can give yourself an exit strategy, which is to roll it up and sell it all to one of those major institutionalized parties that doesn't have the capacity to do what you are doing at your scale, but would love to own it when you grow it to their scale. Absolutely. And I think that's funny that you bring that up because that's the exact conversation that my partners have is the the build to own and having this portfolio of properties um, is such a key for them. And building, you know, not just one, but the rinse and repeat model throughout the, I mean, our identification right now is in the Western United States, um, but hopefully looking at this on a nationwide scale. And yeah, our, I would love one day to be able to to turn up, you know, 50 properties, 75 properties and say, okay, read XYZ, here you go. So, so and, and getting there is going to require exactly what you said, building a team. Yeah. So I know you had some questions and topics that you wanted to cover around team building. Let's let's jump into those. Yeah, the in as I look for project number two, number three, and looking at different geographical areas, it's having to discover that we have our core team of people, but having local knowledge, whether it be general contractors, civil engineers, is extremely valuable that you know. And so when I am, quote, interviewing them or having discussions about their capacities and their goals, what are the things to look at when you're talking with these, for lack of a better term, third-party vendors that you're going to be contracting with? Um, what are the keys that I need to be watching out for to say this is someone that I should be working with or someone I maybe should avoid? All very good and appropriate questions at the stage that you're at. Uh, let me say, first of all, that in my model, in my approach to the universe, uh, I believe it's important to have an architect that is an expert on the product. 
because the way you develop uh, efficiencies, the way you develop cost savings, the way you develop best practices is by working with an architect and having them work on your projects over and over and over again so that they become as adept at the product as you do. They become as adept at designing it as you are at developing it. And so I think it's important that you find an architect that can go everywhere you want to go and is really willing to invest the time, effort, and energy to learn the product and to perfect the product as you go. And that can be a great ally for you when, when you get there and when you build that relationship. I believe that it's just as important to have civil engineers and general contractors that are truly local. I'm going to back up a minute. I'm going to change that point a little bit. I believe when it comes to civil engineers, the opposite is true. You have to have a civil engineer that is hyper-local. Somebody that's not just, oh, they work in Phoenix, but somebody that works in that particular part of Western Phoenix in which you're operating. And his kids probably go to school with the guy that runs the building department's kids. And those kinds of relationships with a civil engineer are really what makes a civil engineer successful. With a general contractor, I can argue one way or the other. And it's really about finding a contractor who can follow you and again, become an expert in the product and build that product everywhere you go. Or you can choose to do what we've done, which is to bid every single project because we have found every time we've tried to use some sort of creative partnership technique with a general contractor or some creative design build contract structure, it's never served us well. We've tried several different things, and every time we come back to bid, 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 just hard bid the project. And that doesn't mean that you don't have relationships with general contractors that are preferred. What we usually do is we'll find a contractor who's willing to invest the time, the effort, and the energy to work with us on the front end to help us with value engineering, to help work with our architect on the design of the product, to help answer questions, help us with cost estimates, building preliminary budgets, you name it. But we're not guaranteeing them you're going to get every job. We're giving them a leg up and an advantage because they're going to know more about the job than the next guy is when they bid it. And we don't always take the low bidder. We take the lowest responsible bidder on the project, which means the party that engages with us the most and convinces us that they really know what they're doing and that they can work effectively with us to deliver the product on budget, but more importantly, on time, because time is far more valuable than money in any project of this nature. So that's just a general philosophical approach about bringing these third parties and engaging with them and, and how you, you, you might want to consider building your team if you wanted to, to follow our approach and our philosophy about those things. It doesn't work for everybody. It's worked for us and what we do. And I think it would work for a lot of people, but certainly not everybody. Now, in terms of the questions to ask, um, I think, again, it varies by the consultant that you're talking about. With the architects, it's really important that you're not just working with a firm. You have to be working with an individual that you know you're going to have that same project manager, that same designer working with you on everything you do. And you know how much of their time and attention you're going to get versus how many other clients they have and how many other projects they have. At the firm level, how big is your business as compared to their overall business and their portfolio? You probably want to be a significant client for them, 
You don't want to be their biggest client. You don't want to be their smallest client. It's sort of a Goldilocks situation. You want to be big enough as a percentage of their business that your business is important to them. But you don't want to be so big that you overtax them and you get beyond their capabilities and they can't grow with you and be nimble and flexible. So I think those are important things when you're looking at architects. With engineers, for me, I have always found smaller is better. Uh, you want to work with the smallest firm that's capable of doing what you want to do. Uh, the reason why is that engineering requires so much hands-on attention and focus that if you're working with one of the big guys, what I've found is they're pushing your work down to a less qualified resource and you're much better off working with the principal at an engineering firm. You want to work with the guy, the guy in that firm that has the experience, that has the relationships, that knows where all the dead Indians in that particular community are buried so you can help navigate you through that process. And you don't want him delegating you down to some less qualified resource. Um, and then with general contractors, again, there's, there's kind of a Goldilocks factor. Find one for whom you're going to be important, somebody who's going to pay attention to you, but not where you're going to overtax them and stress not only their development and construction capability, but their financial capability. The last thing you can ever tolerate in this business is a contractor who goes belly up. That's one way to really get your entire company sideways and end up in a global problem that can poison all of your, your projects if one of your contractors goes bad on you. And that's very in line, I think, um, to, to what we're looking at. And, and that's been the, the pluses and the minuses, uh, especially when it comes to the general contractor on this design build aspect versus more of a design assist um, mm -hmm. And we are definitely with this first project, we have our growing pains and we're learning, but it's perfecting that to move to on to number two and beyond that. Yeah, you don't make money doing anything once. You've got to keep doing the same thing over and over again to, to be successful. Absolutely. And speaking of that, I know that you are looking to try to expand what you're doing, not just within the local market that you're in, but... Uh, you've shared earlier in this discussion, and, and I know in preparation for, for today's uh, interview as well, a desire to look at other markets and expand beyond just one market. And I, I think that's great. I think ge geographic diversification is important. And it's always been a very important part of what I do. Uh, how can I help you understand that process a bit better? Yeah, when looking at new markets and me having a different eye, you know, everyone is going to look at something a little bit differently. You know, even when it comes to different real estate assets, you're looking at different keys. And one of the big things for me is seeing a lot of my friends and family due to COVID move to various locations for various different reasons. It's looking at these markets that have seen this growth and but it's a sustainable growth. Um, it's not this big influx and then stagnation. And so in trying to find the next big thing, which is what every developer is trying to find the next hot location, what should I be looking at if I'm looking at 10 different markets or even 10 different you know, states potentially? I know that's a little bit wider view. What do you look at when saying this is a market I want to pursue another level and really start digging into? Is this going to be sustainable for my potential project? Yeah, absolutely. Very good questions. And we've talked earlier in today's discussion about growth. Uh, my father always says growth makes up for a lot of mistakes. And so focusing on growth is important. 
And as you highlighted, focusing on smart growth is important. Explosive growth, that's a recipe for disaster because what's going to end up happening is land prices are going to go up. The cost of doing business in those areas is going to go up. You don't want to be a part of a boom. You'd rather be part of a gradual stair-step growth in a market where that growth can be sustained, especially if you want to be a long-term owner of real estate. And so what we have been looking at is there are post-COVID these mass migrations that are occurring. You hear about them all the time and they're real. Everyone's leaving California. Everyone's leaving New York. Everyone is an exaggeration, but the numbers don't lie. There are significant numbers of people leaving those states and moving predominantly to Texas and Florida, just like I did. I left California, landed in Texas. I'm not alone. I was just the next guy on that train headed that direction. And so what I have started looking at is even here in Texas, it's the growth has been so rapid that it's getting to be quite expensive to live here. Uh, it's having a massive impact on the cost of living within the state. And the state's no longer as affordable as, affordable as it used to be. I'm going to continue to live here because the, the growth is very strong and very sustained. And even though it's explosive right now, I don't think there's going to be a contraction or a pullback. Quality of life is very good. The amenities that are coming here are very good, but it's not necessarily the best place for brand new development and a venture like what you're talking about. Instead, I'm more focused on the secondary migrations. What does that mean? I'm looking at the people that are fleeing Texas and Florida to move to markets where it's still more affordable to live. We're focused very heavily right now on New Mexico, Tennessee, Alabama, even parts of Georgia are kind of a halfback. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a way for people to escape the mass migrations and find something that's a little bit more comfortable. Some people are bypassing the mass migration. We had several friends who left California and they landed in Boise. They landed in Nashville. They landed in some of these markets where it's not quite as uh, predominant of a growth cycle as it is in Texas and Florida. And then you've got the people, as I said, being squeezed out of Texas and Florida and moving to some of these other markets. And so I think if you focus on those markets, you're going to find yourself making some very good choices and finding some really good opportunities. You're still going to have to fight because everyone has an overinflated perspective of what land values are for ground up development because they think they should be making all the money as, as the market gets stronger, but they're ignoring the fact that construction has never been more expensive both because of the cost of construction itself and the cost of financing. And the only place you can pull that money out of is the upfront land acquisition. But try telling that to Billy Joe Bob, farmer down the road, when you're trying to buy his land, when Billy Joe Ray next door to him sold it for more than he it's worth. And now Billy Joe Bob wants just as much money as Billy Joe Ray got next door. I'm seeing that firsthand, and that that is one of one of the struggles as as a developer in educating those those landowners. No, I but I I do see the value in looking beyond the prized areas, like you said, in, in Texas and Florida, and we've started to to start to evaluate those locations where business now being so technological and the ability for people to relocate quickly and also have these sub-market presence is outstanding. I mean, I am just like you. I left California and, and I'm in the Boise market. 
um, and seeing some companies here that they may not be headquarters, but regional offices growing um, and the continued growth, it's it's really building a base for what you know Austin, Dallas, you know Tampa has turned into, and you know how much they've grown you know over the past you know ten plus years. Yeah, still lots of opportunity in those areas. And when you talk about growth, uh, there's obviously growth of the markets and then growing your own business as well. And I know that's one of your aspirations is to to grow the business. Yeah, and that's that kind of leads me into my next question is having partners that, for lack of a better term, I'm still the grunt, you know, doing a lot of the the digging into things and and you know not making the high level executive decisions. Um, but always having that aspiration to is I do have development experience working with someone like yourself, doing some consulting work for people. You know, I have a, a resume that can back up that I'm not just some kid with that doesn't know what he's doing. But at the same time, I don't have this massive amount of sites under management that people say, okay, this kid or this gentleman is trustworthy and knows what he's doing. And that's one of the, one of the issues that I'm discovering is wanting to build up this business myself and not rely on, you know, other people to really take the lion's share is how do I talk to specifically investors or even people, you know, property owners for that sense of how do I tell them, I know what I'm doing. I have a team, but believe in me. Is it believing in a project? Is it believing in the company? How do I reach and connect with those people? And how do I even find those people is another thing. You know, how would you suggest I, I be able to build that growth model? Well, let's talk first of all about you know the the pitch and and talking to investors and and how you you do that. One thing is you've got to be honest. You have to be completely transparent, and within your honesty, you have to play to your strong suits. You have to focus on the things that do create an advantage for you, and find a way to take even things that others might perceive as a disadvantage, such as small scale, lack of institutional size experience, all of that. Let me reframe that for you in a way I would pitch the story, which is I'm going to outwork the next guy. I may be a little guy, but here is the skill set I've developed. I'm not someone who's a hunter that's just going to go out there and find a great deal. I'm a farmer. I'm going to go out there and make a great deal. I'm going to put in the time and the work, the effort and the energy. And I've worked with people who have instilled these values in me and given me the tool set to be able to work harder and work more effectively than anyone else. And that's why you should bank on me. And then you said, how do you tell the story? That's how you tell the story. But what's more important is not how you tell the story. I tell my team all the time, show, don't tell. You can't tell that you can't succeed in deriving investment by telling a story. You have to show it. That What that means is build an, a dialogue, an engagement with prospective investors and say, hey, watch me. Watch me. And that's all you can ask for in the beginning is watch me and then go do it. And you got to do it at the scale that you can afford to do it without them 
so that you can come back and say, hey, look, I did it. Now let's do it together. And that's really what the key is to building an invest a track record with investors and being successful in bringing that investment into your company. And guess what, Jonathan? That doesn't change. I'm doing that today in the ventures that I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing things that are different and maybe bigger in a different territory, in a different market than what I've done before. I got to start all over again. I got to go show, don't tell. I've got to establish relationships with investors. And I've got to prove myself at a certain scale in order to be able to bring them in to go to the next level. And this, again, you've planted a great Easter egg in your question. There's a whole episode of Datages on it takes credit to make money. And, and it's all about operating at a certain scale, achieving at a certain level, and then leveraging that to go get the investment that you need to grow your business. Now, in terms of how you find these investors, I think that you have a really, there's two things I would say. One is oftentimes when you're looking for an investor, look to your customer, your customer in this case being your tenant. Who are the folks that are going to understand the product type you're doing because they would be consumers and would be tenants in what you're doing? And maybe some of these folks are not only tenants, but a lot of these folks that you're catering to, I can imagine are fairly high net worth individuals that are looking to establish a new venture on their own or looking to have a facility like this to accommodate something that may not even be professional. It may be uh, purely recreational for them. If you got a guy that's getting one of these units to run a, a, a car business because he wants to have classic cars and he wants to, you know, as a hobby, uh, be rebuilding cars on the weekends, there's probably a pool of people that make great tenants and also make great investors. And those people are going to get it because they are your, your target customer. The other thing I would say is we talked about how you're turning the dial just a little bit from an already proven and already successful model. While you may not be in a position where you're ready to start talking to institutional uh, players, you may be in a position to talk to strategic investment players being people that have invested in or have developed themselves large-scale industrial or flex space and can see what you're doing and understand it, but wouldn't tackle it themselves because it's too small for them to go do on their own. But maybe you can present a vehicle for them to participate as an investor without them having to build the infrastructure to go do it themselves. So like I said, I would look to your customers and I would look to your analogs upstream, people doing the same thing at a larger level. And those might be your best two places to be looking for target investors. Yeah, and looking at the programmatic approach and trying to find those that can see the bigger picture, I've actually been reaching out to those types of firms and people. And it's nerve-wracking um, trying to you know, just cold email, cold call and say, Hey, this is who I am. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to sell you something, but I'm looking for a relationship and, and you know, understanding that it is going to take time. And I've had, you know, surprisingly a couple responses that I never expected, um, that, you know, want to be careful and nurturing that. So it's, 
it's fun to expand on that Rolodex after I've built the base and, you know, hopefully be able to have this thing where when the opportunity arises for the person that has the interest, I have the right person to call at the right time and can get those things moving forward. Yeah, you never know until you ask. And it's not always obvious from where it's going to come. And you mentioned the programmatic aspect of what you're doing and of how you're communicating it. I think that's really fundamental to your story. Because what I've found is if you're not getting people's attention as investors, you're not painting a big enough picture. And if you're not getting their investment, if you're not getting their money, then you don't have a small enough ask. It's really about painting the big picture, giving them the full context of what you're doing, again, then showing them that you can do it in a measured way, and then asking them for just the right amount of investment that you're not overtaxing them or uh, crossing over their risk threshold in the way that you're engaging with them. So keep keep fighting the good fight, keep pounding the pavement, keep knocking on doors, keep making those phone calls. Uh, it will pay off. And remember, keep telling the big picture story and coming to the table with a small ask. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's a grind, but I, I, in, I am enjoying every single moment of it. And it's it's great to be able to work for yourself in doing this and, and seeing the fruits of your labor expand, um, you know, which is funny because that actually brings me into kind of a question I had for you, Chad, not necessarily from a building a business standpoint, but working for myself and having that flexibility, having a young family, um, I really, you know, take pride in that and trying to balance that level of work, you know, and having to travel and, you know, attending necessary things, you know, how do you balance having a family, working and and being successful in both fronts? Yeah, it's really tough. And um, I think that there are a couple of different ways to approach it. And I think some of it has to do with where you're at in your progression in life and, and what you're contending with. Obviously, your children are much younger than mine are. I remember back to those days and I remember that I was away a lot when my children were young and and their mom uh, you know was was taking care of them while I was on business trips and and that created its own set of challenges uh, but having a partner in in your wife is really what it comes down to someone who understands the sacrifices you're making someone who sees the big picture and someone who can really work to support you and not ever ask those questions like, well, gosh, where's daddy? And, and when is he coming home? Uh, but constantly reinforce for your children as well so that they get the message and they're learning what it's like, not just to be a great dad, but to be a great man and, and to learn to respect the sacrifices that you're making, to learn to respect the investment that you're making on behalf of the family. And I think you and your wife having those discussions around your children, even when they're very young, can help to paint that picture and help them understand when you're not there or when you can't maybe devote the attention to them. Maybe you're even at home, but you're working at home and you need to be in your zone so they can learn and understand and appreciate why there are those compromises and why there are those uh, points of understanding that that they need to to develop and and be a part of uh, the the family endeavor. Uh, and, And that's part of it. And then as you move along further in life, I think you'll find more and more opportunities to not have to worry about balance, but to focus on integration. And this is what's really worked for me 
along the way is not focusing on work-life balance, but finding ways to just have one thing, which is my life. And my life includes my work and it includes my family and it includes travel and it includes rec- recreation. And a great example for me right now, in the last uh, three weeks, I actually had the longest trip I've taken in my entire life. I, I left on June 11th and I returned home on June 30th. And in the course of that trip, I had business in London. I had a vacation with my wife in Barcelona. I had business in Poland. And then I had a football camp for my youngest son in Boston, uh, who aspires to do exactly what you did, which is to uh, play Division Three football. He's looking at some of the NESCAC schools uh, around the New England area. Um, and he'll probably look at Chapman and Pomona and some of those in California as well. But my point is, within that trip, when we're in Barcelona, guess what? We met up with my older son who just graduated from high school and was on a, an expedition to Europe, the, the uh, backpacking across Europe trip post high school. And then we flew my son, younger son over to Poland to be with us for a week before coming back and going to his camp so he could see what his dad is doing. He could see where I'm working. He could see the professional environment that I'm in and finding ways to integrate your family in that way it, it, it's great. It's amazing. I can tell you it, it solves a lot of the challenges that you're talking about because they really can understand. They can see what you're doing. They can be a part of your life. And if, even if it's just in little bits and pieces, always finding those ways to, to integrate it together, I think is the recipe for success. And that's what's worked for me over the years. No, that's that is one thing, again, looking back at Aventine that I think you had already implemented in the ability of if I am traveling to location A, you know, why not take the family because there is recreational things and you, know, you I think there that's what gives life balance is having the ability to turn the brain from work brain to family brain and you know, it makes it just a fluid response to everything and and that's fantastic and I hope to be able to do that more as my daughters get older and, you know, we'll be able to try. They're a little hard to travel with right now. So <laughs> I understand. I understand. But I think there used to be this notion. Uh, and I think, I think it's a Western society notion perhaps of you go to work and then you leave your work at work and you come home and you shut it all off. I just don't think that's really realistic anymore. There's so many of us working in hybrid situations, working from home and you have to really learn how to navigate, um, not trying to shut it on and, and, and shut it off, turn it on and shut it off, but really trying to find ways to, to integrate it and to transition seamlessly back and forth at, at all times. And it sounds like you're well on the way to achieving all of that. And I think that's fantastic. Um, and, and I'm you know very happy to see not only what you're doing professionally, but how you're you know integrating it into your life, uh, building your own family. Uh, it, it's, it's fantastic to see. And that's really for us here at Datages, that's the fundamental essence of what we are all about and what we're trying to create as a culture within the Datages friends and family is, is building that environment where we can all be successful in all aspects of life and have great family structures around everything that we're doing, um, in, in our lives. 
And, you know, one of the other things that uh, as we wind down here today that we adhere to here at Datages is uh, as a dad, you've always got to maintain a sense of humor, too, to help navigate all of these things. Uh, and, and one of the key components of that is the essence of the dad joke. So, Jonathan, I'm wondering if you came prepared today with your very best, very worst dad joke to share with us. Yeah, you know what, Chad, I, I think that, and this is something that I think you can specifically enjoy, because if I'm not mistaken, when you were at Stanford, you were on that pre-med track, weren't you? I sure was. Yeah, okay. So I was kind of in a similar boat when I was figuring out what to declare. My my mom is in the medical industry and then my father being in business, you know, I was pulled in two different directions. And I ended up going with business and, and you know, I'm enjoying it now, but I always have to think about, you know, one of the my ideals and goals in life was, you know, I wanted to be a cardiologist. But the thing is, I just don't have the heart. <laughs> that was a very long setup for a terrible punchline, and that's, that's right. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Jonathan, uh, speaking of long setups, uh, you know, this reengagement and reconnection has been a long time coming. Yeah. Uh, but the punchline for me has been fantastic, you know, to be able to. Uh, learn where you are, to learn where you've gone since uh, being a part of Aventine. For me, there's absolutely nothing more gratifying uh, than to know that I played some small role in, in helping uh, young people to develop and grow in this business and to, to, to succeed on their own um, and really move into being an entrepreneur and being successful in, in the development world. So this has been a great treat for me, uh, and I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. So I thank you for reconnecting. I thank you for taking the time to come on Datages and, and share your story, not only with me, but with the rest of the friends and family. Uh, it's, been, it's been really meaningful, and, and I, I truly appreciate it. No, thank you. I, I'm honored for the opportunity to, to share my little knowledge, and as I continue to learn, um, as you know, I love every minute of what I'm doing and, and look, this isn't a job. This is my way of life and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. So thank you, Chad. I, I'm very grateful and, you know, I hope that someone can take something that I've said and, you know, maybe put it to work. I don't know. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And always be learning. That's right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, the keys. And, you know, on that note, you know, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.